It's time for a WeChat workout. WeChat. Go to the Cliff Central account. Tab connect. Then message to show. Cliff Central is turning one, and to celebrate, we're giving away half a million rand in smartphones. Half a million rand in smartphones. You could win just by listening to Cliff Central on WeChat every day during every show. Yeah, baby. If you want an upgrade or you need a new smartphone, we'll hook you up. Win with Cliff Central and WeChat for the month of April and visit cliffcentral.com for details. T's and C's apply. On radio. On radio. More of the good stuff. Cliffcentral.com. Well, good afternoon. My name is Dr. Cindy Siwefansale at DocCindy, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I on Twitter. And we're back again for yet another um, health hour. And this afternoon I have um, Dr. Michelle Moorhouse and she's an HIV um, clinician um, like I am. And she's just as passionate as I am about HIV. And that's why I'm so thrilled to have her um, with us today. So thank you so much for being here, Michelle. Thank you, Cindy. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So uh, tell us a bit, of, a bit about yourself, Michelle. I know that you've been working in the HIV industry for a very long time and you've, you, like, you've really seen at all, you know, literally. Yeah. So where did it all start? Your love for medicine, where did that start? Sure. You know what? Um, I'm one of those weird people who, when I was four, wanted to be a doctor and never really changed my mind. Apart from a brief soiree with thinking maybe I should rather be a vet because I went through a phase of liking animals more than people. I didn't actually move on from the phase, but I still went on to study medicine because I thought I could help more there. Um, and so, yeah, it was just really never anything else that I wanted to do. I just always wanted to be a doctor and um, I didn't get a huge amount of encouragement. Um, I come from a family where nobody actually finished school, um, so I didn't get a lot of support or encouragement, and people said to me, you know, you won't get in, and if you get in, you won't finish it, and all that kind of thing. But anyway, here I am, and I do have the DR in front of my name. So um, that was kind of how I got into medicine, and when I got into medicine, I loved medicine. I was so happy. Some days, I think, I actually wouldn't mind going through med school all over again. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Anatomy again? Oh, hell no. Oh, that was great fun, though, sitting oh, there. Oh, <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, oh, I liked anatomy. It was like a year of quiet, just sitting down there in the lab and quietly picking away at a body. It was interesting. It's and, you know, and you know, it's so funny. People don't actually believe us when we tell them. Like, you know, you'd, you'd go in there, there's this body that you're slicing into pieces. Mm. You spend a whole semester cutting this thing up. You go out, you have lunch, you're in the cafeteria, and then you go back and you carry on. Like, just... Our lives just carried on. They did. They did. And I mean, it was, when you think about it, it was quite a horrific thing to do at that age. Mm. Just, you know, cut up a human body. It's quite a, a strange experience. And re- recently I went back into med school and I hadn't been in for so long. And immediately my senses were assaulted by that formalin. And I thought, wow, I feel like I'm back in second year again. Anyway, so that was medicine and, and how I stuck with that. And then afterwards I went, when I finished, I went to the UK for a bit just to pay back the huge astronomical student loans. And then when I got back, I decided to do anesthetics for a while. So I took up an MO post in Livingston in Port Elizabeth, which oh, is yeah. also where I did my internship. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I was trying to decide if I wanted to specialize or not. And that was when I met a, a really interesting man by the name of Neil Malone, who had a GP practice down there, and he was desperately looking for a partner. Yeah. And I actually remember my first day starting with him. He said to me, hmm, 
somehow I don't think the GP thing is going to be for you. And I said to him, well, what do you mean? I mean, I've been doing anesthetics. Have you got me pegged as an anesthetist? And he said to me, no, not really, more of a radiologist. Oh, my goodness. I was so shocked. It was like, wow, this man just hit me in the face with a wet kipper because (laughs) what he's basically actually saying to me without being rude enough to say it is, really, you have no people skills, so better work with machines. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that was how I took it. But I went into the GP work, and I did actually enjoy it. I mean, I was a a newly um, graduated doctor, so I still had a lot of enthusiasm. Um, But then about two weeks after I joined him, he actually decided to go on a trip overseas. And he just said to me the day before, I've got this many patients lying in the ward at Greenacres Hospital, and I've got this many patients enrolled on a clinical trial. Some of them are pretty sick. They all have HIV. Don't let them die. I'll be gone for two weeks. So it was literally a baptism by fire, It was. It was like really a throwing in the deep end. Mm. And in all fairness, they all survived two weeks. um, And I emerged from those two weeks with a new passion and a fire in my belly. And I've never switched away from that. Um, And I mean, we're talking 1999. We're talking the days when there were no ARVs available in the public sector. There you know, limited access to treatment and mm. so how did you how did you guys work around that I mean when had you first heard about this virus this mm. HIV I first heard about it when I was at school. I f- think I read about it. I think it was You magazine. Yeah. And that was the first I heard about it. It was around about 1985. So it didn't ring home to me a lot. And most of the publicity it was getting at that stage was around the population where it was most being diagnosed, which was in um, gay white men in this country. And people don't know that. that the, the, no, gay white men, were really, they were the guinea pigs for everything that we know about HIV today. All the drags, they were our guinea pigs. They were. And they were also the drivers of the activism as well yeah. to some extent. You know, they started very much of the activism in the US that got things moving there mm. um, and always have you know been there and supportive still in activism regardless of the population group but um, yeah in those days I mean we did have ARVs in the private sector mm-hmm. but I'm talking about we would have a combination like Crixivan and AZT and um, Lamivudine and it would cost over 3,000 Rand per month for that mm. treatment so only a few medical aides were paying at that point. So unless people were independently wealthy and the viral loads at that point were still at like over a thousand rand and the CD4 counts were about 600 rand. So for the test, for the, yeah. And now we, I mean, and now we do the finger prick, um, uh, you know, we, we do tests for like what, 95 rand? Something CD4 like that. CD4 count yeah. is 95 rand. Yeah. You, you can even, you even have point of care testing. Absolutely. So basically, if you had no money and you were diagnosed with HIV, you were going to die. Yes. Michelle. Yes, it was, and it was terrible. I mean, I would also have patients who their whole family would have saved up for two or three months to be able to afford to actually bring them in to see the doctor. And by mm. the time they would come in, it was obviously too late, and it would often just be a case of they'd be, they were brought in in wheelbarrows, they were brought in in stretchers. Mm. You know, some of them managed to walk in and or barely because they didn't want to be seen in that really frail condition by the doctor. It was a pride thing. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, they were facing, I mean, the stigma still hasn't been addressed as it should be, but I mean, the stigma then was something else. Really? I mean, it was incredible. And uh, I had a very suburban kind of practice in Port Elizabeth at that time. And we lost some patients who didn't want to be in the same practice where they knew that HIV patients were being seen. Oh my goodness. I mean, I, I mean you were telling me that I'm um, just, your decision to work Look at Dr. Neil Milan. Already, just the fact that he was um, a, a gay, a gay medical doctor, mm. people were discouraging you from working in that practice. Mm. So, you know, this is 1999. Am yeah. I even talking like what 100 years ago? No, but, you know. 
no. Um, and so, I mean, it used to be heartbreaking to see these patients. And so, really, the only way we could treat those patients was um, getting involved in clinical trials. So okay. I did that. Um, and that used to get quite a lot of patients on. And that was fantastic because you would just see, you know, that was that whole Lazarus thing. These people mm. would come in. And the trials in those days really had um, cutoffs that were for CD4 counts that were pretty low. Okay. Um, so, you know, they enrolled sick patients. And, and, uh, and it used to just be amazing just watching. I mean, if I remember the first few patients that I started on ARVs on these trials, and it was like watching a flower bloom. It was incredible. It was like life-changing. And I mean, clinical trials get a lot of flack. I know that I spend an extraordinary amount of time in the, you know, in, in my private time chatting to people who have lots of conspiracy theories about big pharma and so on <laughs> and so on. And yes, you know, big pharma is not always good. There's a lot of things that they have done, which, which, you know, which are questionable. But in, I mean, in your experience with the HIV clinical trials, I mean, how would a patient get enrolled and what were the conditions mm-hmm. for enrollment? So in terms of, of the clinical trials, before I would agree to be an investigator on a trial, I yeah. would always speak to the pharmaceutical company and say, what are you going to do for these patients? You know, the trial would usually run for one, sometimes two years. And then I would say to them, so what happens to my patients at the end of the clinical trial? Um, and they would just say, well, the usual thing in the U.S. is they revert to standard of care. Now, given that standard of care at that point in South Africa was nothing, I didn't that didn't sit well with me ethically because yeah. that's kind of use my patients as a guinea pig and now you have no longer need for them you've got the data so we my the partner that I was working with at that time uh, he and I agreed that we would not accept clinical trials unless they made some post-trial commitment to our patients and some of those companies agreed to continue treating them for life others continued to agree treating them until it became available in the public sector and anybody could access it or the actual drugs that they were on and then some of them agreed that they would keep them on until they failed that particular regimen um, and then would depending on where they were would reassess at that point. Okay so you still have patients who were part of those clinical trials way back then still on treatment now. Yes. So the the pharmaceutical companies have honoured their their promise. They absolutely did yes. They absolutely did. I mean they they wouldn't have had a choice either because we used to get put into the contracts. Okay. What the post-trial access plan would be for patients. Okay. Yeah. And just the evolution of the drugs. So basically so 1999 what were people on then and then you know then, then of course we get to 2004 when people are started on treatment mm. like how have we evolved over the years in terms of what we mm. give so don't forget being South Africa even then although we could access a lot of the drugs in the private sector we were still behind in terms of what was standard of care yeah. so in 1999 people were using triple care but not necessarily in South Africa there were still a lot of patients who were on dual therapy mm. and in fact that continued and that's two drugs yeah uh, and that even really continued right up until 2004 certainly in Port Elizabeth there were still a few doctors that were a little bit treating with dual therapy at that mm. point. Um, but at that point, patients would almost universally receive um, uh, zidovudine or AZT with um, 3TC lamivudine. And then the third drug depended a lot. It was nevirapine. Mm. If the patients, we still in those days did the, if it's a very late presenting, or put them on a PI, so they were on Crixivan. And when I started, it was before we actually started boosting protease inhibitors. Mm. So um, it was big handfuls of pills oh, mm. that you took very religiously. They had ghastly side effects. Patients felt terrible. Um, they got lipoatrophy and lipodystrophy, so they didn't look great. And that's great. disfiguring. That's, yeah, that's when you lose really? fat around your face yes. and around your legs and your arms and so on. Yeah, and you get like a buffalo hump. And, and big tummy. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, 
um, you know, it was very stigmatizing the actual treatment itself. Mm. Um, so most of them were getting that kind of combination. And then as we sort of evolved, was, the clinical trials were great because they exposed us to the newer drugs that were coming along, drugs like tenofovir, even stavudine. Um, and uh, yeah, because stavudine was just sort of coming on in South Africa at that point. Mm. Um, I mean, stavudine is a fairly controversial drug now. Yeah, D14, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, then I, it was in 2003 that I moved into um, the pharmaceutical sector. So then I got to work again with a lot of the newer drugs, but I was working in the first world setting in that, at that point. So then okay. I got exposure to whatever drugs were available in the UK at that point. So okay. it's been fascinating. And, you a, and so you had a stint in the UK. You were there for about five, five years. 2003 to 2009. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and so their, their HIV, um, epidemic, what, what does it look like? Different to ours. Um, it's got the one side, the biggest driver of new infections is in the um, white MSMs, men who have sex with men. Um, and I think part of this is because it's a younger generation and they didn't live through what the MSMs in the 80s did. So they so haven't seen haven't seen any of the devastation that was caused by HIV. No, they haven't seen AIDS. Okay. They haven't watched their partners die. They haven't sat at their bedside in a hospital, watched their partners die, knowing they could do nothing for them. So it's this kind of, well, you know what? If I get HIV, there's ARVs. They don't have many side effects. Mm. In the UK, we have a normal lifespan. So they expect to live until 76 in the UK, studies have so shown. If, so if you're on treatment... In the UK, you can live up till 76. On average, yes. Absolutely amazing. Which is incredible. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's the, so that's the biggest driver of new infections now in the mm. UK is even though there's, they're progressive there, the MSMs are still presenting late, being diagnosed late. And that's their biggest gap in care at the moment. I was actually at a conference there last week. Mm. And what they were saying is in the whole cascade of care from diagnosis to death type of thing, uh, their biggest loss is, is the biggest gap they have is actually from, from infection to, to, to diagnosis. That's their biggest gap. So they reckon they probably have about up to 20% undiagnosed. Um, So that's the biggest driver of their epidemic. The rest of the epidemic is also made up of actually Africans. Um, A lot of Africans who have sought asylum or been refugees or um, a lot of Zimbabweans have moved there and that type of thing. And they've been a lot stricter now in terms of African migrants. But that's the other big component of their epidemic. So strict in, uh, uh, are they they imposing um, travel restrictions on HIV infected people? I don't. I don't know if they've implemented it. I know they tossed it about at one stage, mm. and then I'm not sure what happened when the governments changed. Oh, okay. So I, I think partly it's driven by that. But then um, what was also quite interesting at this conference is we were asking about their numbers, and they have 72,000 people who are on ARVs in the U.K., which that's, <laughs> No, that's, that's – oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, when you think that – when you look at our pandemic, I mean, we have – you know, they say 6.5 million people were mm-hmm. HIV infected. And then you're telling me about a, a, you know, a place where they have 72,000 people on treatment. That mm-hmm. sounds crazy. It does. It does. And I mean, we've got in the public sector now more than 3 million people on ARVs. Yeah. What is absolutely fascinating to me is the drug budget for the UK is 72,000 is bigger than our drug budget for our 3 million. Oh uh, I think they said their drug budget was about 411 411,000 pounds, no, 411 million pounds a year. Oh my word. So it's, it's bigger than what we treat 3 million on. And in terms of the first line treatment, like what a person in the UK, what's, what's the whole entry into care? What do they go through? Sure. So, um, 
they get a lot more kind of broader testing at baseline than what we do here. We do what we need to know, what's actually going to make a difference in terms of prognosticating for the patient and making sure they're safe on their ARVs. Mm. We're also perhaps, because we've got so many more patients on ARVs, who generally, most patients... Start them on their ARVs and they go along and they're fine. That's true. That's what people don't know. Mm. The majority of patients start treatment and I mean, apart from a, a few transient side effects, mm. like a week or two of, of not feeling too good, most of them just carry on and they do really, really well. They do. They do. I mean, uh, we, we go on and on about the side effects, but actually we see most of the patients do actually adapt or they, they, they settle down on the side effects. And if they don't, we do have options. We mm-hmm. do have things that we can switch them to. In the UK, it's slightly different. So they'll get a much bigger panel of testing. I mean, they will also include hep C. I mean, they have a much bigger hepatitis C issue than we do here. Really? Yeah, I think it's because of the population in which they're, they're the pandemic yeah, is. They're, okay, so, okay. Uh, they also have a bigger um, uh, people who inject drugs. Oh yes, than we do okay. as well. So, so they have a slightly different sc- uh, scope there, which would explain part of that. But in terms of what they're getting first line, you know, their first line has the same components to it as what ours does. So mm-hmm. it's obviously two NRTIs uh, plus a third drug, and the third drug they have a bigger choice. Whereas we generally say it's going to be a favorins. They tend to say, well, you can maybe have darunavir if you'd like, which is a protease inhibitor, as you know, or you can maybe have one of the others like vulpivirine. Or so they pretty much can use any drug in first line um, and I think one of the differences with them is is that they do so much more resistance testing so they oh, can do at that at the beginning yeah because okay, so they, they want to find out what is your virus the exactly. strain that you have resistance yes. to what okay. does your virus look like okay. you know, let's get okay. a picture of it so, okay. so they will actually do a resistance test at diagnosis okay. then they will do another one when they're about to initiate ARVs then they will every time they fail they will do a resistance test mm. so you know they have a, a a much bigger virological picture of the virus there. Mm. And so that's why they have that scope in first line, whereas in first line we don't do resistance testing mm. if a patient fails, plain and simply because with the combination we use, we know what to expect. So, yeah. you know, that's a way we can save a huge amount of money. And we are, I think, I think expensive. Yeah, I think given the amount... Well, given the amount of work that we're doing, we are doing it as cost effectively as we can. Absolutely. Um, so like, let's, let's go back to these, these travel restrictions. Um, when I, when I, Michelle, I know that there are still countries that impose restrictions on people that mm. are traveling. And what are your thoughts around that? I mean, I think it's, I, I personally, I just think it's unethical. I mean, this whole thing, I had a patient that I saw two weeks ago and they had found the clinic I work at, Zuzin Bilo. They had found the clinic on the internet, Googled, called the clinic. They live in one of those, um, the eastern countries mm-hmm. and they had traveled take, it took them a year to get here but they traveled you know to South Africa to seek ARV treatment so the mm-hmm. wife is really really sick she had a CD, CD for count of 20 sure. she's literally skin and bone but mm-hmm. they saved up and they got here to get treatment here they've gone back they'll be back after three months for blood tests but they live in a country where if you are found to be HIV positive you are going to jail Right? It's, one, it's one of those um, uh, not, Asian's the wrong word What's the word But in any case I can't say the country But it's one of those countries Where if you're found to be HIV positive you, You're going to jail Eastern European Well no not, not Eastern European mm-hmm. It's one of those places Dubai It's one of those oh, Dubai okay. countries Middle East <laughs> the middle, Exactly <laughs> My vote up today So So we In 2015 We still have countries That do that I mean I know that If you want to go and study In Cuba for example I mean I see the Department of Health All excited about sending Students to Cuba But do you know That those kids Are subjected to HIV testing And if you test positive You can't go If you get there And test positive You come back Like Sure What what, You know What are your thoughts around that 
personally, I think it's wrong. I mean, yeah. you don't test for other things to exclude people mm. necessarily. So, you know, why HIV? Why the difference? Why keep singling out this disease for difference? You know, why make it worse than what it is? Um, because, you know, if a pregnant woman is going to travel to another country and she goes into labor in that country, that's also a cost on that country. Mm. So you wouldn't stop her. You wouldn't stop somebody who's 80 necessarily getting on a plane unless they were unphysically fit to fly. Uh, it's like, you know, it's, it's just, I just see so many parallels in it and I, and I just think it's unfair to discriminate on that basis or on any basis. You know, um, people usually want to cho- have chosen to go to a specific country for a reason. And I, I think that discriminating against them for any reason, just to my personal view, is wrong. It is wrong. And, and this is what then drives the, you know, people wanting to keep their HIV status a secret, people reluctant to disclose. I, I mean, and I think, I mean, you work in the public sector, Michelle, and, and I, I know that when you did a lot of clinical work, there's always that one employee who's come in asking, you know, telling you that the employer has said to them, you must come back with a letter stating what's wrong with you and so on. The nerve yes. that some employers have, I still don't know what to do with such people. I really, I, I don't understand where that comes from. I struggle with that as well because if you don't say anything, then the employer assumes the worst. And then more often than not, the poor employee is actually so scared about losing the job that they just accept that, okay, you know, they, they kind of throw up their rights almost. And exactly. Because they're so desperate for that job. So, you know, they kind of say, no, you can tell them. And I just think, but this is so wrong. Uh, exactly. And it's kind of these poor patients are stuck in this position uh, between a rock and a hard place. You know, if I don't get the letter, I'm going to get fired. If I get the letter, I'm they're probably going to find a way to get, to get exactly. away, to get rid of me quietly. So, you know, it's it just to me, it never works. Um and usually what I do is I do phone those employers and I usually have a discussion to them and ask them how would they feel about me disclosing stuff about them like that to somebody else, mm. you know, just to consider that third party. And just because I'm having this discussion doesn't mean that there's anything significant to reveal. But it's privacy and, and everybody is entitled to that. Yeah. And I, and I it doesn't always work though. Some are very pigheaded. Yeah. And, and I think what people don't realize is that the, um, the, like section 27 and just our constitution really protects people who are HIV infected. You Absolutely. cannot discriminate like that. I, I don't think HIV infected people themselves even know how much our constitution protects them. I don't think they do. I don't think that they are, um, quite that familiar with it. I mean, they, they may not have, Spent time looking at it, but I mean, yeah, yeah, their rights are so protected by the constitution. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and if you're listening and you're HIV infected, I mean, just know that there's a, there's an organization called Section 27 and they make sure that your rights are never ever, um, trampled on or abused or anything. Whether it's in a relationship where someone goes out there and spreads your status around, you can sue a person for doing that. And whether it's an an employer who wants to know your status, they don't, they are not allowed to, to ask that. I mean, if I give a sick note and it says general medical condition, that is what it is. It's a general medical condition Mm -hmm. done, you know. That you don't have to come back and tell them what's what's you know what's going on, but yeah no and 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 just overseas as well, Michelle. What are the apart from the travel restrictions, which I think is really you know abominable. Mm. What else do people um, who are HIV infected in the UK, for example, face? What 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 kind of issues are they facing on a daily basis? I think it depends on which group you're looking at. Yeah. So um, I mean, the MSMs are always a unique population who always have their challenges, whichever country you find them in. Uh, I think the ones that really break my heart are the African migrants that go there because yeah. they do go there and they do get very good care, and most of them do have a new life. Yes. But I just feel sorry for them because you speak to them and you find so many of them still have left their whole family behind. Mm. I mean, I met a woman once and she hadn't seen her one daughter for 13 years, oh. and she'd had to. Leave when the daughter was two, 
um, to get better medical care and that type of thing. She'd had to leave when the daughter was two, mm. and she hadn't seen her since. And I just think to myself, you know, she just couldn't afford to go back because she was sending all of the money she was earning to To, to build a better life for, yes. for her family back you know, home. So, so, I mean, that's a big problem that they face there. So, um, especially with the way the face of the epidemic has changed, is they used to get a lot more in the way of social support in the UK than yeah. what they get now. They still so get like a, a fair grant. amount. Yeah, but, uh, you know, the grants there were pretty... Um, um, amazing, and they for a long time they weren't reassessed after the um, advent of heart. So you know it was always they were given a grant that would provide them access to all of the things that they would need to ease their end of life, which was usually quite expensive equipment to modify their home or maybe even a home or a shelter to be put in. So often the grants were a lot bigger, and it took a long time for the government to realize actually wait a second they're not dying anymore. Oh. They must actually get off of their grants, mm. and when they're well they must go back to work, mm. um, and 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 we must stop actually paying them to sit at home when in fact they can be part of the workforce again. So they pretty much stripped that back away but there's still some people who probably could do with better support than what they get. Well, I feel the same way about South Africa. I feel that um, there's a lot of HIV infected people who need that boost certainly in, a, in the first six months. Mm. This is not for everybody. You know, I just feel that some people do need a financial boost mm. and um, it's something I'll probably be looking into one day when I'm Minister of Health. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if I... I can't wait till you're Minister of Health. I think that'll be fabulous. But it's not going to be now, Michelle. Like, I'm, I'm, I've got a 15 year plan. We'll see how it goes. Excellent. But yeah, let's have a song break and when we come back we'll be chatting about um I really want to speak about sex work. The sex the, the sex workers that you work with in, in the sure. C B D. Perfect. It has been locked away from the eyes of the world. Chained. Never to be released. But now it wants to get out. Stay tuned to Clef Central weekdays to find out how you can unleash the Jeep Renegade. Find hidden codes and videos posted by Jeep SA and you could win Jeep Renegade prizes. As well as become the person to single-handedly unleash the Jeep Renegade upon the shores of South Africa. Are you renegade enough? I'm a renegade, I just hit the ground running. Visit unleashrenegade.co.za to find out. T's and C's apply. There's an event of the ooh, ah, yes, yes, yes persuasion happening beneath your refrigerator. That would be the O'Flanagans. They are making sweet, sweet cockroach loving behind a rogue cherry tomato. As they lie spent, two tangled exoskeletons, they snack on a piece of used dental floss and pick names for the new additions to their rapidly growing brood. 127 and counting. And Mrs. O is still broody. Freaky broody. The refrigerator hums and works its Michael Bublé-esque spell. I'm going to ravage you like a piece of sandwich meat, says Mr. O, as Mrs. O rolls around giggling helplessly on her back. Bring it, Papa, she says. Bring it. And he does. Right there beneath your refrigerator in the shadow of a cherry tomato. Make them stop with fast, deadly doom. I am the future of South Africa. On my shoulders, I carry the hopes and dreams of generations to come. I'm eager to learn, but even more eager to use my knowledge for good. I know that it's not where I come from, but where I'm going to that really matters. At Sibanya Gold, we believe our youth is worth its weight in gold, which is why we are so committed to developing, nurturing, and grooming our young people into future leaders. Sibanya Gold, we are one. 
So basically, yeah, Cliff Central's turning one on the 1st of May and we are giving away a new smartphone, a Samsung Galaxy S4. So you can answer this competition question by submitting your answer on WeChat. Um, you tap connect and then competition on the menu. And the question is, how many shows does cliffcentral.com have on a Monday? That is the question. How many shows does cliffcentral.com have on a Monday? Answer at WeChat, tap connect and then competition on the menu and you could win yourself a brand new Samsung Galaxy S4. So back to Michelle. So Michelle, um, before the song break, we were going to speak about um, your your work with sex workers. So yes. that's I mean that's something that um, is close to my heart because um, I I'm one of those doctors that has a heart for. For, I think forgotten people is the wrong phrase, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So if I walk into a room, I'm not really, I'm not really worried about the people that are loud and in your face. I'm yes. more concerned about the shrinking violets in the background. And I think I've always been like that. Yeah. So sex workers are members of society that, in terms of stigma and just being forgotten, mm. they really bear the brunt of the the worst of us as Absolutely. human beings. So how did you start working with them? Well, really, it was when I relocated from the Eastern Cape and I took up a job here in Gauteng with Fitzroy Chai, yeah. which is um, it's just a fantastic organization. And in fact, Sex Workers is just one of the projects I'm involved in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, initially, I wasn't working on it. And then one of the other... Uh, People in the organization actually said to me, would I be interested? And I was so thrilled because it's such a fantastic project that we have. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, as you say, there's such a marginalized group. And they are so grateful for the care that they are getting and the attention that they get. Um, and it's quite nice seeing them because initially some of them sort of come in and they're a little bit shy and a little bit retiring. But then they kind of almost, as they settle in and they realize that this good care isn't going away, they almost become a little bit diva. <laughs> Which is quite cute to watch, you know. We only want the red condoms, not the blue ones, or, or whatever. But um, um, I'm going to be on Cliff Central in a in a couple of weeks' time, and I'm hoping to bring in some people from the Sex Workers Project, and hopefully, I'm going to bring along a sex worker as well, who's kind of on the receiving end, and chat a little bit more about that. But in terms of what we do, we provide some care. We're also actually doing a clinical study, which is looking at pre-exposure prophylaxis and mm. treatment as prevention for. Um, for sex workers So you know A great project there as well But mm. yeah I'll be talking about that At length In, in a couple of weeks time mm. And I mean And that's and that's fantastic I mean one of the reasons Why I had to interview Michelle today Is because On the days when I won't be able to do my show Michelle will be doing The show for me And speaking of the show I'll be moving To the Monday morning slots So I'll be on On Monday Starting from this coming Monday um, Between 9 o'clock And 10 o'clock Straight after Gareth So I'm really excited About that new slot I think it's, it's going to work Really well for, for the show So and 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 I think I wanted to ask you, Michelle, is with with prep, right? People, I, I don't know if there's the health journalists reporting on prep, but people really got the wrong idea of what prep actually is. Yes. You know, so if you could, I mean, and someone asked me about it on Twitter, and I just, I mean, I was very rude when I responded because I just posted a link. I didn't have the energy to go through through prep and 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 yeah and PEP. But let's talk about prep and where did this whole idea come from? And research has been done. Where are we now hmm. with regards to prep? Okay, so. It's been quite an interesting thing because I met a, a UK clinician when I first moved to the UK in 2003. Yeah. And he is a man who I think is a genius and is ahead of his time. Uh, he was a clinician there and he invited to his house one day to have dinner with him and a group of other friends of his. And I opened his fridge and his fridge was full of ARVs. And I said to him, Dr. Yule, why is your fridge full of ARVs? Mm. And he said to me, for prep, darling. 
And that was exactly how he speaks. Prep, darling. <laughs> so I said to him, fair enough. Can you tell me a bit about this? And he was already doing prep in those days. Like in 2003, he was already doing it. Wow. He was an interesting man in that he works with a lot of MSMs. He's very passionate as well about HIV. Yeah. Uh, he's very, very bright. He's very off the wall and kind of has these thoughts ahead of their time. Mm. And then he'll. And you get people like that. That's oh, fantastic. And then yeah. he'll, he'll actually try something like that and then gather the evidence afterwards that it yeah. works. But I mean, he was doing it then. But there were studies done, and we've had some what look like conflicting results of the data. Okay, so just, just to give people a, a background of what what is PrEP. Okay, so what PrEP is, it stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mm. So we've used PEP in the past. So anybody who's maybe been to a sexual assault center or maybe somebody who works in the healthcare sector, if they've had a needle stick injury, may have been given antiretrovirals to prevent them getting infection. So that's called post-exposure prophylaxis. So the injury has happened, the exposure's occurred, now we try and stop the infection taking hold. Pre-exposure prophylaxis means preemptively giving them something to prevent infection. So before the exposure occurs, we already are intervening. Um, and there have been various things that have, the different um, modalities that have been looked at. There have been some gels that have been used. There have been tablets that have been used. There have been combination pills that have been used. But really what has been shown with most of them, and I'm not, I'm going to take aside the microbicidal gels now. Yeah. But in terms of the oral treatments, the, whether it was tenofovir or whether it was tenofovir combined with emtricitabine or in some cases, lamivudine, when it was taken properly, it worked. Mm. When it was and, and that is the clincher. It had to be taken properly and consistently for it to work. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So if it wasn't taken, it didn't work. And so it looked like all the studies were kind of having conflicting results. But when you actually went back and you looked and you looked at the number of people who adhered, either by looking at their drug levels or by how much medication they'd returned or various other things, when you actually went back and you saw that the patients who were the high adherers, those were the patients where pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP actually worked. When it comes to the gels, there seems to be a little bit more of an issue. It's a little bit more complicated, but even in the recent FAT study, when you did go back and you interviewed, and it was a study which was largely young girls mm. who don't often have the control about when they're going to have sex, mm. they were asked to take it just before. And, and you don't really know. No, and so, you know, it would have meant carrying this thing with an applicator around with them, okay. and, you know, they didn't always know. And also they, a lot of them found it not that easy to use. Mm. Um, at but there were still some who did adhere. And again, you saw the same thing. The ones with better adherence did have a lower rate of infection, mm -hmm. but there weren't that many who were able to adhere to it well. And because they were in a clinical trial and they'd been told this is a very important trial, mm -hmm. this is one of the biggest trials about this in Africa, they were too scared to, or didn't want to admit, okay, we haven't been using it properly. Because so, um, so, yeah, unfortunately that study didn't show a benefit for that particular gel in the study. But actually when you did go back, you would see that the ones who Used it more consistently, did have have a have a better outcome. Yeah, and I think what worried me was when the media was reporting on 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 prep. They made it, they sold it as a as this magic tablet. You take the tablet, you go out there, do whatever you want, sleep with whoever you want to, and you and you and you're safe. And that's really not what prep is. No, and that's not the reality in the trials either. Mm. They don't get just given the pills. They are given a whole lot of adherence. In, I mean, sorry, prevention ad, ad, ad interventions as well. You know, so they are counselled extensively. They are given condoms. You know, they are given often lubricant as well, especially for the MSMs um, and that type of thing. So, you know, it's not sold as uh, this is the package, this is it. It's mm. actually sold as a bigger part of, of one strand of a combination intervention. 
So speaking of, of, of funding, I think what a lot of people don't know is that um, the funding for HIV in, well, in low-resource countries comes from PEPFAR. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the funding comes from yeah. PEPFAR. And um, PEPFAR is the present emergency um, fund for um, AIDS relief in, well, in, well, in Africa initially and then, of course, the other countries. So things have changed over the years in terms of PEPFAR funding. And so we went from, so when I worked for a PEPFAR funded organization, we went from um, doing the, the stuff ourselves, going to a clinic, I was, you know, I was at a different clinic every week, treating people, seeing them, giving HIV treatment to a stage where we then pass on our skills to, to nurses within the Department of Health and then they then had to do the work. And that's really when we saw a lot more people put on treatment because more people were able to do it. Yes. And now we've, we've changed again. Yes. So where are we going now with the new, with the new funding? So Cindy, I know that there are going to be some changes. Yeah. Um, I know that there's going to be changes in terms of amounts of funding that's been spoken about over many years. And the funding has been going down over the years. And it has been going yeah. down and it will continue to. And as far from what I understand, there are going to be some changes in how the funding is distributed. Mm-hmm. So they'll be focusing. They'll be focusing on a lot more on, on on areas in the country that need more more well more attention in inverted commas than other areas. Possibly, I think so. Oh, okay. I think that would be the way they might go. Oh, okay. In terms of the stats in South Africa, okay. So I think one of the biggest myths, and I speak about this all the time, one of the biggest myths in our country is that HIV primarily affects the black population. Hmm. Okay, and that's because of what the media tends to portray to us, and we know that that's not true. Okay, so, I mean, for example, you worked in a practice in Port Elizabeth where you saw a lot of white people with HIV. I did. Okay. I did. And um, actually, one of the bigger groups I had in my patient was um, a white middle-class group of patients where, especially in Port Elizabeth, I used to see there was almost like an emerging little pandemic going on there. Mm. And a lot of that happened during the years of um, the new government. And I think it's just because maybe we had... A lot more kind of freedom going on in the country and mm. a lot of people still believing actually this is a disease that doesn't touch me. I'm not a gay white man and I'm not a black. Mm. Uh, and so they believed that they were untouchable. And unfortunately, I saw many people who'd fallen victim, victim to that kind of a mentality. Mm. And one of my, one of the things I really enjoyed in my private practice was I didn't enjoy it for their p- perspective, but often when they would get diagnosed, they would be thinking, okay, this is it for me. No family for me and that kind of thing. And the biggest joy to me was when they would actually somehow get referred to me and I'd be able to say to them, that's nonsense, you know, we'll get you sorted out. And I've got quite a few people on my Facebook friends and that kind of thing where I've sat with them, helped them through conception, safer conception. And, you know, some of them are going for their second and third child now. And that to me is just amazing. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's something that's close to my heart as well. I mean, a lot of the work that I do with HIV is really centered around PMTCT, um, the the prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV. And that's something that I'm really, really passionate Mm -hmm. about. And um, the other thing I wanted to ask is in terms of um, school health, because I know that um, the Department of Education and the Department of Health haven't really made up their minds properly about condoms and schools and so yes. on. But we know that kids are having sex, yes. Michelle. We know this. So what's your take on on, <laughs> on how to handle all of this? You know, I find it a, such a strange thing because teenagers have always had sex. They will always have sex. It's not going to change. And you may stop them from doing it in your house. That's fine. They'll find somewhere else to do it. Exactly. You may tell them... <laughs> Don't take birth control because you don't, you know, we don't want to tempt you. They're still going to have sex. They are teenagers. They are curious. Exactly. Um, so you may as well empower them and equip them to do it safely and actually have them be knowledgeable about their bodies and be knowledgeable about their sexuality, mm. you know, and be able to, to talk about it and be comfortable with it. But I mean, yeah, teenagers are teenagers. They will have sex. 
So do you have do you have kids? I don't have kids. No, oh, okay. <laughs> I have nieces and nephews. They were enough to put me off kids forever, <laughs> as much as I love them dearly. So, are any of your nieces and nephews teenagers? Have you ever spoken? Do 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 you do sex talks by the way for kids or high schoolers? I'm happy to do. Yeah, mm. I mean, I I'm actually I quite like relating to adolescents and that kind of thing. So I enjoy speaking to them. So yeah, I've spoken to my nephews and that before. I think it's important, especially as you know, especially my nephews. I really want them to take the initiative and not be always relying on the girls because that's the other thing. I remember when. I was a teenager. Yeah. You know, it was always the girl's responsibility to take care of contraception, mm. you know, and, and it's not. It's a, it's a joint responsibility. But I would like, you know, that's the one thing I've hoped that my nephews have learned is mm. that I would like them to step up to the plate and to be responsible. You know, if you want to have sex, that's fine. But it's an adult thing to do. You need to have an adult attitude about it and you need to be responsible. Well, that's my attitude as well, that if you are going to, you know, to have sex, you know, the whole, the, the, the whole thing is manage your bodily fluids. Mm. Keep your germs to yourself. I'll keep my germs to myself. Let's just do this. Let's just yes, do this properly. Absolutely. You know, and I think parents still have their heads in the sand. I really feel sorry for those parents. I mean, they're the, they're the ones that then bring their kids to casualty yes. at two o'clock in the morning. Oh, my kid's got a tummy ache. And then you examine the child that that poor child is pregnant. Yes. But didn't have the guts to tell their parents. Absolutely. You know, and, um, I, you spoke earlier on about, um, different colored condoms, like the pink condoms or red com- condoms, whatever it is. Um, we, the condoms that you distribute, um, in the sex work group, mm. Are they made in South Africa? Are they, are they? Generally, we distribute DOH condoms. Oh, is it? Okay, so I know we have the grape. The, was it grape flavored or purple colored grape flavored? Yes. Are there any other variants that we have on the market of choice condoms, or is it only that one? At the moment, I think it's only that one. But oh, I know okay. that there was talk by, by the, the um, Minister of Health a few months ago about expanding the range, mm. a greater selection of colors and flavors. So with the sex workers, um, Michelle, what are, the, what, are they, what are their feelings about the choice condoms? Because I know that there's so many myths and so many lies that have been told about choice condoms. Choice condoms work as well as any other condom. Absolutely. Do they have a preference? Do, they, do, they, do their clients have preferences? So there was some instances where they had some red condoms and they did find that their, their customers did like, their clients did like the red condoms more. So that's why they were asking us, do you have red condoms for us? And we didn't have red condoms for them. Uh, so quite often they do express that preference because it's what the clients have asked for. Um, but you know, when we say to them, well, we have choice. That's interesting. Mm. That's very interesting. So in terms of risk assessment, I know that a lot of people, I mean, I, I, I write for, I answer questions for health24.com. Mm. So I, I, I feel questions from all over the world. And it's always very interesting to me to see how the overseas people that, you know, ask questions are always, you know, they'll tell me a long story. So I, I saw a prostitute, I gave her a condom, I gave her a, a blowjob with a condom on, and then I fingered her, but my fingers had no cuts, and I'm worried that I might be HIV infected. The, the, I can always tell the questions from Africa, because then it's, oh, I had sex with a prostitute, and I didn't use a, um, you know, a condom, and now I'm very worried. What should I do? How should I do it? Risk assessment. Mm. When should people go for, for post-exposure prophylaxis, and how do you assess your risk, mm. you know? So that's an interesting question, Cindy, um, because a lot of people are not themselves aware of risk. For starters, a lot of people don't really know about the realities of the transmission of HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the starting point is people need to know what, what their risk is in terms of how do you in fact get this disease. Um, and then, yeah, what, what constitutes an exposure? You know, if you didn't have any breached skin, if you didn't have any exchange of body fluids, then you haven't really been exposed. You know, so it's quite important that people know that, but often they don't. And the other issue is that they don't know where to go to get that kind of information mm. so, 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 so i mean I, I mean so kissing giving blowjobs or you know you know giving muffs fingering unless there's like a proper breach of skin and copious amounts of blood not even copious amounts but amounts of blood and so on the chances of you transmitting or acquiring the virus in that way are very small they are low yes yeah that's the, they you know, they're low. very low and and in terms of um 
unprotected sex as well. There's also things to consider around that. Absolutely. I mean, for example, anybody who has another sexually transmitted infection at the same time, their risk is automatically higher. But they may be asymptomatic. So, you know, they may have another sexually transmitted infection and not know it. And so they think, well, no, I've got no ulcers. I don't have a discharge. So I'm okay. I don't, that doesn't apply to me. But that's not necessarily the case, unfortunately. Um, and we do see that syphilis is on the increase. Yes, I, I, I saw that as well. Yeah. So in terms of where to get post-exposure prophylaxis, mm-hmm. so now you've been exposed, you need to get the tablets, um, where would you go? Strictly speaking, you should be able to walk into any primary healthcare facility in this country. But it doesn't happen. No. We know that that's, that's not happening. So if you've been sexually assaulted, yes, you can, you can get um, post-exposure prophylaxis free of charge at any um, health facility. Mm-hmm. But if you've had accidental exposure, like maybe the condom burst, you, you, you'd have to buy post-exposure prophylaxis. But the condition is that first you get tested, and if you test negative, then you get given the, the PEP. Because if you're already positive, then that's something completely different. Yes. And I know that GPs are able to write you scripts, yes. and, 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 and you can go and buy it at the, at the pharmacy. Yes. And I don't think it costs – it shouldn't cost more than 100 rand, no, as far as I heard. You should be able to get fairly fairly cheap combinations to mm-hmm. cover it. So. And in, in terms of the tablets that you get, you can either get two tablets for post-exposure prophylaxis or you can get a course of, of the, you know, triple therapy. Yes. So when would we give two tablets and when would we give triple therapy? Well, we're actually in a period where guidelines are about to change. Mm-hmm. So, um, and really it'll be saying you either have an exposure or you don't. Okay. You either have proper prevention or you don't. Okay. So it's three drugs for everybody if there's been an exposure. Okay, that's great. I think that's going to cover, then that'll just cover everything instead of having to figure out, oh, what's my risk and what's going on and so on Absolutely. and so on. And in terms of the cost of treatment, um, um, Michelle, I know we spoke a lot about the UK. I'm still very interested in that. Yes. Um, how much does the cost of treatment cost in the UK? Like, do you have any idea what the prices are? Um, not a whole lot. Uh, the one thing I do know is, for example, the... Um, Protease inhibitor persister, um, Darinavir. Yeah. I think that costs probably about 400 pounds a month. Yeah. And I think the new integrase inhibitor, which is just not that long ago gone on the market there, I think costs a similar amount. Oh. So, you know, that's just one drug of your triple regimen. Yeah, that is a lot of money. And generics, are, are they big on generics overseas? No, they don't actually generally have generics quite often because a lot of the drugs have these patents that keep being renewed. So mm-hmm. when you have a, a drug, for example, every time you reformulate it, mm-hmm. you you're, you get a patent extension. Mm-hmm. Then when you've done as many reformulations as you can, then often what a pharmaceutical company will do is then go into animals with the drug. And so that, again will re-extend the the patent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they may decide to do something different with the drug, like, again, maybe a different formulation or something. So there's these ways that they keep the patents going. Instead of the initial, I think it's a 20-year patent. Yeah, 20 years, yeah. yeah. But by every time doing this, changing the formulation, it's it's no longer the original um, drug anymore. So each time that gives an extension on the patent for it. So we're actually really lucky to have generics. We are incredibly lucky, incredibly lucky. And we not only have generics, we have good generics. Yeah, no, very good. I think that's what people don't realize, that we have very, very, very good generics. That's crazy, Michelle. So people are locked. So you basically locked in for all these years and Mm -hmm. you have to pay 400 pounds a month for, for this drug. Absolutely. That is crazy. 
But then don't forget that in that country they have the NHS, which buys those drugs and pays for people. So, sure, that is crazy. So, in terms of developments, I mean, what's what's in terms of your like, well, your 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 career? What are you working on at the moment? <laughs> Lots of different things. I'm yeah, working on some interesting studies, which are slightly different paradigms of treatment. Um, which uh, so there's there's quite a few of those. I'm working like on the sex workers project. I'm also working on which is winding down to an end now. The Stavudine study that. That was done. Um, and then I do some other stuff, like I do some ward rounds. I occasionally teach medical students. I have such a lovely job because every day I do something different. So I love that. I mean, I'm on leave at the moment. I've taken three days leave. But I think I'm going to end up the end of the year with like most of my leave left because I, I like going to work. Work is great. That's so awesome. I think that's what happens when you do something that you're really passionate Absolutely. about. You actually enjoy you going do. to work. You do. I always know where I am with my job is if I sing in the car on the way to work, <laughs> then I know. My life is good and I'm happy because work is good. And it's like it's such an early detector for me. Okay, things are not good at work because I didn't sing in the car this morning. So oh, that is so true. It's the weirdest thing. But when I'm happy at work, I sing in the car. So That is amazing. And in, in, in your practice, like the oldest patient that you ever saw, I always get asked about HIV and AIDS. Um, how old was the oldest patient that you've ever dealt with? Well, the oldest one that I ever dealt with was 82 and he seroconverted a month before I saw him. And what is the sto- what, what is the backstory with him? Actually, it was a very long and sad story, um, and it was actually quite heartbreaking because I knew him personally, um, and it was terrible. He was married, and he had a lovely family, and they were all very happy, etc. And his wife died, and I think he never really kind of recovered from this, and he never moved on. He never remarried, even though the children were saying to him, you know. Go out, date people, you know, live a life. She wouldn't want you to not be living your life. And I think in the end, he still just couldn't go that way. And so I think in the end, he just started sort of fooling around a little bit and perhaps not being safe. But he never got into another relationship. Um, and I heard when I returned from the UK that actually he had died. Oh, Michelle. Oh, it was terrible. It was really So he sad. never really went on treatment or anything? I started him on treatment and then he left Port Elizabeth and he relocated within the country. Um, and so I'm not sure whether he really had the will to take the treatment. I think he was depressed because of everything that had happened. And I think he just, just probably never got to grips with his diagnosis. Oh, Michelle, that's really sad. It I mean, I think sad. the oldest patient that I saw was um he was 88 sure. okay and his story is very similar to what you've told me so his wife had also died mm. and his family had found him a companion in inverted commas and yes. she was in her 50s yes and um i can i can only assume that you know this is just an assumption that she you know she must have you know infected him because he was he was well mm. and his family brought him in and i had to counsel him and i remember him saying to me that um, he, there's no ways he has this disease that, that all these youngsters have. He doesn't sleep around. He doesn't yeah. do whatever. And that was it, you know, and I never saw them again. Oh. And, you know, he let that room ring very well that he was HIV infected, but yes. he just could not accept that he was. No, some people can't accept the diagnosis. Yeah. Well, you know, Michelle, it was really great having you. Thank you so much for being here. And oh, also thank, thank you so much for agreeing to, to um yeah do the show has been I'm not around and the first show is going to be on the 11th of May because I'm going to be in Harare at the time okay. and the winner of the Samsung Galaxy S4 is Sujata so congratulations Suja thank you for listening and I'm glad that you won the you won the phone so yeah I'll see you guys next week Monday my show moves I'll be on air between nine and ten o'clock on Mondays starting from this coming Monday. Cliffcentral.com.